I remember about 10 years ago or somewhere around that, I, I came across a framework for part of this path that I found really resonated for some of the things I'd already gone through and clarified some things that I were discovering in some of the classical teachings of the Buddha, both in what I was reading and practicing. And it was a, a framework by the psychologist by the name of Jack Engler, who used to work at Harvard, I think in the psychiatric uh, department for students going through that, uh, that, that uh, course of training. And also he was uh, kind of part of IMS in the early, you could say the early days or early years, as well as BCBS. And also I think it was in the late 70s or early 80s, Jack Engler, he did a study with uh, Dan Brown, some of you might know, and Ken Wilbur on the yogis on three-month retreat. It's an interesting study. And also on Deepama. Uh, so he had this, uh, just, he had a sense of, what we were doing, do, what we're doing here, and also had done long retreat. And over many years, he he actually varied it a little bit, but he he saw the path as both this process of being somebody and being nobody, and seeing them as as these processes that were intertwining. And so that's what I want to share with you about uh, is some reflections around being somebody and being nobody. And hopefully you're going to be able to hear how they're intertwined really in, in the classical teachings that we can find in, in some of the early literature of Buddhism. And I want to be clear, like there's so much I would love to say about this and there's so much to say. So this, this talk tonight is not going to be comprehensive at all, just to be clear, because I'm just trying to get myself off the hook before I begin. <laughs> and my, uh, my attempt here is to hopefully at least give you a, some feeling sense of, of this so that it can be incorporated into your practice. And... And remember, I'm, I'm not trying to a- aim to make this intellectually clear. I'm trying to bring in some examples and ways of getting a feeling sense of what it is to train or to open in being nobody and the importance also of being somebody. So being nobody. And I'm going to be connecting this with this teaching around uh, cultivating this perception of not-self. And, and I want to point out that uh, often you can find the Buddha in the, the Pali Nikayas, when he, when he talks about this insight into no-self, he uses this Pali word sanya to perceive, to, to learn how to perceive experience in a particular way, to perceive it in the sense of not self. So it's, it's, it's learning this ability to, to, to engage in this, to open to experience in this particular way, to perceive in this particular way. And I'm sure most of you know, this is a central teaching that we find in, in Theravada Buddhism. For example, so the story goes, there's a, a sutta where uh, 
that supposedly happens right after the Buddha uh, attains full awakening. So he attains full awakening, and then the first teaching he offers is to his five former companions, those five practitioners that he was doing all those austerity practices with. And what was the teaching that he gave to him? It was around not-self, perceiving this, understanding it. It's, you know how these stories go, and then it led to full awakening at the end. (laughs) (laughs) And again, to uh, hopefully get a feeling sense of being nobody, this feeling sense of not-self. And I'd like to begin with a a poem that I, I... feel like conveys at least one dimension of something that has many dimensions. And it's a poem by a poet uh, by the name of Virginia Hamilton Adair. And she, she used to live in, uh, she's uh, passed away. She used to live in Claremont, California. And she used to drive up into the San Gabriel mountains to the Zen center. I spent many, uh, quite a number of years practicing at. She was coming up there doing retreats, doing session before I was there doing dissection, these, these seven-day retreats. And this is a poem that she wrote about that experience of being on retreat. And there's one phrase that I just uh, want to clarify. Uh, she talks about this Saratoga trunk. So if you don't know what a Saratoga trunk is, kind of a simplified definition of that is it's just to, to imagine a large suitcase so when she talks about a Saratoga trunk, to imagine a large suitcase, if that's an unfamiliar term for you. And the title of the poem is Zazen, meditation in uh, what's called in Zen, za, sit like a zafu, in Zen, you got Zen, Zazen, <laughs> sitting Zen. So this is her description of her retreat as she comes into the retreat. When I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples, nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs, Even the horse I never had. (laughs) And the two casseroles left over from the diamond dip supper. No one remarked that I'd brought too much. (laughs) I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins. My feet encased in cement ever since the failure of that patio project. And my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche, burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. 
no one. Have you noticed what you put in that large suitcase, that Saratoga trunk that you brought to retreat? Isn't it so relieving that nobody notices it? (laughs) I find that relieving. And it's crammed with all kinds of stuff, isn't it? All of these things that I think are me. This is who I am. I I find her list so telling about the things that entangle us with a sense of self. How I get entangled with stories and narrative narratives that I think are me, that they're mine, that they define me in some way. Just like that one line, chemistry quizzes with Fs. How, how it defines how, how, who, who I see myself is, is sometimes determined about what happened in those early years of school. Oh, I'm smart. I'm dumb. I don't know anything. I know so much. It's like we carry it around in this suitcase. And it's also the things that didn't happen. It's not so great. Even the horse I never had. The things that didn't happen, I carry around and I call me, I call mine. I want to hold on to them for some strange reason. Stay entangled. And I'm sure you've seen how the mind so far on the street, how it gets obsessed with what, what's in the suitcase. And it's the defining of a me that makes it so confining. And I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with the stories about one's life. It's who do I create out of that? And how am I carrying it around? Am I hooked? Or is it just a story that I can utilize without misapprehending it? And this is one of the activities of creating a self that we're here to explore on this retreat. This kind of self that's entangled with stress, with suffering. And this is the the art, I think, of this path, is, is noticing that there are just these experiences that have happened in my life, and I don't have to confine myself with them. And in terms of the practice with all of these stories, 
The practice is very direct, and I'm sure you've heard this again and again and again, the way to relate to this with this particular approach. Noticing these stories, just thoughts that are arising in the mind. The thoughts about those chemistry quizzes with Fs. Oh, remembering. Interesting. Remembering is happening. And then it can come with a whole conglomeration of emotions. Shame, regret, judging. And to be clear, when emotion arises, it's, it's, I'm not denying it. I'm opening, I'm softening, I'm acknowledging the pain and challenge that might be entangled in there. Ouch. It's tough. The softening from self-compassion. And then beginning to feel through them from the stance of mindfulness to, to disentangle, to, to let go. To notice how this phenomena of story and sensation and emotion, how it arises and passes away. And within that, right, just practicing like that, it has the perception of not-self built into it. Do you hear that? Just the noticing of it. Oh, this is just thinking. Here's emotions, here's sensations. Oh, interesting. Oh, and here, this is how the self can get born when I'm hooked into it. It's just the scene. It's the title of a book by Rob Berbea, The Scene That Freeze. And yeah, just I'm, uh, I'm given the short version of this. Of course, it can be so messy. You, you notice a little bit of it, then you're lost in it. Then you feel some of it, then you lost. You notice a bit more, a back and forth. Sometimes it's like that, just drop by drop is the water jug filled. And what I want to point out here, the way I'm presenting it, and this is really how I read uh, what the Buddha gives us, at least in the, the Pali Canon, is that this is a practice, not a philosophical position. It's the practice of perceiving experience in a way that frees my heart. I'm learning to perceive not self. Why do I want to do that? Because it's freeing, it frees the heart. I appreciate uh, Tanasaro Bhikkhu writing about this. He, he talks about not-self as being a strategy. It's a strategy to free my heart rather than some kind of philosophical stance or trying to make a, a, a comprehensive metaphysic about how the universe and the world works. And, and the Buddha points to this when he describes ways of attending to, ex- to experience inappropriately or unwisely. It's really interesting ways of attending to experience inappropriately. And I just want to share two, two of these views. So two of the views that would be attending to your experience inappropriately would be having the view, I have a self arises in a practitioner as true and established. Or having the view, I have no self arises 
in a practitioner as true and established. Isn't that interesting? It's not about having a fixed view. Oh, there's, there's a self. There really is a self. Oh, there's really no self. That's more of an intellectual discussion rather than a tool. And, and, and he says, practitioners that, that get stuck in these views, they are not freed, I tell you, from suffering and stress. And I think this can be easily forgotten, and it's true. Later on in Buddhism, it, it, the, the teachings around that self, they, they do become sometimes much more philosophical. And there can almost be this obsession with the notion of no self. Like everything has to be explained and described through that lens, and if not, it's not true Buddhism. And we'll get back to this. And to me, this is the brilliance of the Buddha. He's not trying to give me a comprehensive description of the world. He's given me a way out of suffering. And whatever works, works. Just, just holding the, the idea there is no self is not necessarily freeing. For example, I had a a friend, a fellow practitioner who lived on a commune. I think it was in, say, the East Coast. I shouldn't be too specific. And they had some rules. Some of the rules was you couldn't use the word I. You couldn't use the word me or myself or mine. You couldn't use the word no. He said, it was probably the most dysfunctional community I'd ever been in my life. (laughs) So it doesn't seem that that works so well. (laughs) And then the the Buddha goes on in this, this discourse of, so how does one attend appropriately? That would be a ways of attending inappropriately. And there's much more to that, but I want to shorten it. So how to attend appropriately. Ah, this is stress. This is suffering. Ah, this is the origination of stress, of suffering. Ah, this is the cessation of stress and suffering. And this is the way leading to the cessation of stress and suffering. The Four Noble Truths. Wow, it's so interesting. When I'm lost in that story about those chemistry quizzes with Fs and lost in the sense that I'm no good, there's a lot of suffering. Oh, interesting. Here's the first noble truth. Uh, How does this arise? Oh, grasping. And then through the perception of not self. Oh, this isn't me. This is mine. This is just the thought arising and sensations and emotions. There's at least a, some taste of stress ceasing. And then I get a sense of the way. To hear how this is different, it's not like, do I believe in this or not? Like, is it effective for you in the heart's release?
we want to get a sense of this. Is where, where, where am I entangled in a sense of self that is causing suffering? And, and you're hearing that I'm beginning with uh, giving this framework of when there's a sense of self that's built around a certain story or narrative. This is what we got from Virginia Henwilton Adair's poem. Because sometimes that's an interesting way to track kind of the arising of a self that causes suffering for me. And, and I do want to acknowledge that some of these stories or narratives can be quite deep-rooted. Like sometimes I feel like it's, it's more than just a thought. It's like it's in my body, my bones. It's that deep in some way. Like I'm somehow functioning out of them in some manner that's created a me that definitely ain't working. You know, it could be, I remember noticing this, like, I can only feel okay as long as everybody likes me. Oh, you ever try that one, getting everybody to like you? It's exhausting. Just when I think about all the time I've tried to spend that, and it hasn't worked. That's, that's, that's the kicker. But it's a feeling. I don't know if anybody's kind of suffered from this. It's like, oh, wow, like this is more than just a thought. Like I can feel that, like, like I need that. I can only feel okay as long as everybody understands me. I can only feel okay as long as nobody leaves. I can only feel okay when I feel I know and understand what's going on. I understand everything. When I have it figured out, at least in some manner, I can only feel okay when when that's there. Maybe you can relate to some of these and how a self gets formed around them, gets structured, is given birth to. And, And when I say these, there might be others that are more resonant for you that feel similar. And I want to point out, this is tricky territory because because I also want to acknowledge, at least for some of these, they're intertwined with some human needs, like the human needs of at least having some people that understand me. That's important and that like me. Like this is part of creating Sangha and Kalyanamitta, spiritual friendship. It's a human need. And that... The, there can be at least some folks in my life that can be there at least with some kind of consistency. So I'm not denying that. It's just that when it gets to be an absolute, that's where the hook is. You know, when my mind can unhook from these, it can be so freeing. I remember this practitioner um, that's coming to my mind right now. She, uh, I, I was just so touched by her practice. It was somebody that uh, has really inspired me in, in practice. And I remember seeing her go through this tough time where someone had 
really misunderstood her and as a result didn't like her and then the story got around and then a lot of people didn't like her and just from the outside maybe because of my own stories it's like wow this is rough and just to hang out with her and to notice like she was okay with people not understanding her and not having everybody like her I was like, ooh, I want to be like that. I want that freedom. <laughs> it's inspiring. I mean, sometimes you get some of that, you know, that contact high, you could say. Just to notice how relaxed, and it wasn't something uh, superficial. I could see she was relaxed in herself. <coughs> she actually loved herself, and we'll get to that, because that's part of the being somebody. But she didn't have an absolute, like, my mind was still struggling with at the time. i got to make sure everybody likes me. i got to make sure everybody understands me. And that's where the real suffering is, is when I'm wanting a particular world, I want my world that aligns with this kind of self. It's just, it's, it's the setup for suffering. Because that world doesn't exist, no matter how much I want it. And this is so much of the hook, is I want my world, a world that's situated around a self, a fixed self that's causing, creates a lot of friction and suffering in my life. Just a, a, another example or two of this to get a, a sense of this. I remember I was on retreat and it was a long retreat. And uh, one teacher, just one teacher. And I was so not into their Dharma talks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just did not like the way they were explaining the Dharma. I couldn't relate to it. And it was like, ah, oh, that's not it. It's, and it was really interesting. I was getting so angry. <laughs> and, and then, I don't know if you, you know, I had these moments, right? And then I remember, oh, I'm here to practice the Dharma, that's right. Oh, okay, so maybe I could see, oh yeah, yes, this too is my practice, right? You know that turn? <laughs> and I just want to say, that is the key for me. If I can, sometimes if I can remember the one word, oh yes, this too is my practice. Like, what's the way out for me? Because re- remember, when I'm hooked by something, often I'm trying to control something that I have absolutely no control over. <laughs> and then I start to clarify, I might not have complete control of this heart and mind, but I have some influence. And that's where practice happens. So, so then I began to practice with that. This, what you're doing right here, what's happening in real time when this is going on. What's going on in this heart and mind? Okay, hearing. Okay, it's unpleasant. There's a lot of aversion, irritation, anger. 
Oh, and there's the wanting, the wanting it to stop. (laughs) There it is. I can feel the bind. And then it was like what emerged was like, oh, there's a kind of wanting here entangled with really a strong sense of self, a fixed sense of self. And what I noticed is, oh, I'm wanting something from this teacher. I'm wanting them to reflect my world and my view. And I'm not getting it. And then, of course, sometimes when I touch upon something, it's just allowing my heart to soften. Like, oh, of, co- of course this is painful. Oh, no wonder. I'm, I'm, wanting, I'm wanting my world to be reflected back to me. It was so helpful. Because what I noticed is it literally my body could start to relax and open. And then I, I could actually hear another person. So, oh, this is just another view. That's all it is. Can you hear how I was creating this self? That's why I was suffering. It was a a wanting my world and I wasn't getting it. And it really took the shape of the fixed views I had of how things should be. And the reason I wanted to share that with you is that sometimes the dynamic is not just, oh, I have this story about myself that creates this fixed sense of self, but it's almost like I'm, I'm trying to create a particular world that's also entangled with a, a self. So just the, these different ways of getting a sense of, of, of how I can suffer from the arising, the becoming, trying to become somebody, trying to, trying to make a world arise that's situated around that. And that's why it's so interesting in one of the suttas, uh, the, the Buddha describes the four noble truths of, oh, there is a world there is a cessation, there is, a, there, there is the origination of the war, that world. There is a cessation of that world, and then a way that leads to the cessation of that world. A whole world can get created. That, 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 that there's this dynamic of suffering. And just an, another expansion of this, of how it's, a, it's like I'm looking out onto the world, but what I'm seeing is sometimes a, a self that's been created. And I'm, I know you've seen this on retreat because all of us teachers have been talking about it, of, of how, and I, on retreat it just feels so real, like how my mind can feel like it knows others so well when I have not even spoken to them. <laughs> I, but I know them. And even the people that you might kind of know here, Sometimes then you can get even more filled. I actually do know them, know them really. But it's the same dynamic. And I remember, and uh, it was easier for me to see because it was a, a, a retreat I was teaching. It was um, 
in a retreat center in the southwest in, in my area, and there was a practitioner who had a, a, a device for a medical condition that he had on retreat. And um, there are two things that I'd never call about it. it. It would beep every so often, and it was also connected to his phone. So that means he had to check his phone throughout the day while on retreat. Do you know where this is going? <laughs> right? And a couple of practitioners even came up to him upset that he was breaking the rules. As Anais Nin says, we do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. It's amazing how powerful that can be. And I know what that's like. Like my mind really feels like it knows what somebody's doing. And even more than that, the intent behind it. I so know it. And do you hear the power of when I burst the bubble of my world? I start to see, oh, I'm not seeing things as they are. I'm seeing things as I am. We have no idea in this silence. And again, on a practical level, yes, if someone slips and falls, serious distress, of course, respond. But there's something so powerful about being being in this container and noticing this. It's important for our lives and for our communities. So this is this exploration of the perception of not-self around story, around narrative, whether it's a story or narrative about myself, but also the stories and narratives that I'm describing the world are also self. They're me, they're mine. And it's really fascinating to see that there's a kind of becoming, trying to become somebody, trying to bring into birth a certain kind of world. And I want to acknowledge there, there are other, so many other ways of exploring this perception of not-self. And I just want to briefly touch upon them because some might resonate for you that you might want to play with. And the key word here is to play, to play around with this. One of the uh, things that shapes our perception deeply is language. The language I grow up with shapes how I perceive the world. And for example, in English, <clears throat> there's a cer- certain basic construction to language. You know, there's a subject that's engaged in whatever verb that's in that simple sentence. Right? The dog walks. Who walks? The dog. <laughs> the kitty cat sits. Who sits? The kitty cat sat down. The bug crawls across the floor. There's a subject engaging in that action, that verb. 
but it's implying something. Often what, what, what start the, the mind starts to imply from that is that there's some kind of fixed entity at the center that then's engaging in an action. That's kind of what the language is assuming, but that's not necessarily the case. So it can be helpful in light of this to, to, to play around with language to help get a little bit of a different feeling sense. And that's to use the passive voice where you're taking out the subject. So instead of, I am breathing, oh, breathing is happening. What's that feel like? To, to allow language to help shape, to get a little bit of a sense of, oh, perceiving, not self. Or even, this can be used in other contexts too, oh, breathing. Breathing is being known. There's the breathing and there's the knowing of it. Oh, interesting. To get a feeling sense of that. Oh, thinking. Thinking is happening. Can you feel that a little bit from I am thinking and how thinking is happening is feels different? It's like moving out of a world of a lot of nouns and into a world with just a lot of verbs. Moving into a world of processes so helpful because this is what what we're attempting to do with the perception of not self it's very much intertwined with for example the teaching on dependent origination the the, the teaching on conditionality conditionality oh this is this is a rising and passing away because of a multitude of conditions rather than positing something or somebody at the center and what I'm inviting you to do is not so much think about this, but to feel it. Does it feel just a little bit different when you approach practice that way? And then another framework that can be helpful is getting a feeling sense of a whole spectrum of a fixed sense of self. Sometimes it's, it's called, some teachers like the, the kind of the thinning out of the self-sense and the thickening of the self. So in one extreme where the, the kind of the self has disappeared or, or is thinned out, it's, it's like the self is not there at all. And there can be so many different flavors. So I just want to say that it's not just one flavor. And often they, it's not necessarily dramatic. Sometimes people hear about not-self and feel like it's got to be this dramatic and not-self experience. And there are those, but they can be very mundane and not dramatic too. Where it, it just feels like empty phenomena rolling on where you're meditating. It's just experiences unfolding. Sometimes it's an absorbed state where, where it feels like there's just even a sense of self and other, like a duality disappears. There can be many different flavors that would be on this, this side of the spectrum. Oh, wow. It's, yeah, it's gone. Interesting. And then on the way other end, which is just as important to become curious about, where it feels like there's a thick sense of self. And what I mean by this is there's a sense of self that I'm suffering a lot from. I'm completely lost in judging or craving or aversion. And it has a certain feeling to it, right? Here I am. And I'm pissed off, right? (laughs) There I am. Here I am, and I am, I, I'm so anxious, I'm so sad, 
And it's like it has a feeling to it. Be some deep regret from the past that's just like you're lost in the spin of it. And just, that's a real opportunity for practice. Oh, oh, this is, this is what we're talking about. Oh, here, here's, here's me. Here I am. This is what it feels like. Oh, this is attending appropriately. Oh, interesting. This is stress. This is really stressful. This is a drag. First noble truth. (laughs) And then you're going to start to feel the spectrum. So it's not just getting the extremes, but the spectrum where you're lost. You're lost in fear or that worry. And then it's the recognition, oh, there's worry arising. Interesting, and it feels like this. It's still sticky, but you realize the sense of self isn't as thick. So it's a way just to track that. There's some mindfulness now, and with that, there's the noticing of the fabrication. Ooh, I can feel some space around it. Oh, and then even a little less. Oh, like there's just a real... Understanding, okay, yeah, there's worry here, noticing the thoughts, feelings, the sensations. And it's like the self is still there, but it's fluid. It's a little more translucent. So just an invitation. I think it's so helpful also to situate it in attending appropriately with the Four Noble Truths in the way that the Buddha was talking about. So check it out. See what you notice. See if it resonates or not. So this is this entry way into being nobody. And then being somebody. This is important. And, And again... I just want to point out again another example of the Buddha not being so uh, fixating even on this notion of no self. He's he's having this conversation uh, with uh, Chitta, the elephant trainer's son. And they're having a conversation about the usage of the word self, you could say. Chitta's going all over around different kinds of selves. But to make it simple, it's, it's simply about this usage, usage of the word uh, self. And it almost feels like the, the Buddha kind of cuts to the chase with Chitta. And he, and he says, listen, but Chitta, these are merely names, expressions, terms of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata, another word for the Buddha, uses without misapprehending them. These words around self and notions of self, there's no problem with it. Don't worry. (laughs) It's okay to utilize them without misapprehending them. So how can we use notions of self without misapprehending them? Utilizing a sense of self without getting hooked by it. And again, I just want to bookmark. I really am trying to simplify this. You know, even notions of self and identity during the Buddhist time are so, so different than these modern times. So there's a complexity here 
that I think it, it's, it, at some point is interesting to kind of look into. In some ways, the, the Buddha is sometimes pointing to something a little uh, quite different than uh, many ways that we use notions of self. And this is where it can get confusing. And, and Jack Engler, what he's really clear about is he's trying to distinguish what the Buddha was talking about was, uh, was something he called the ontological self, which to, to make it simple, he's talking about some a sense of self that's some fixed static thing that's at the center of experience that's creating the suffering like I was just going over. He's, Jack Engler's claiming it wasn't talking about the psychological self. Because it's important for me to also be somebody. And what I mean by that is to have a, a sense of positive regard for myself. Where I'm okay with myself. I, I like myself. I love myself. Because it creates a, a stable sense of self, which is super important for this practice. And I remember being confused about this in my early on in my practice. I, I remember uncovering this dynamic of, I, I just wanted to be invisible. I wanted to disappear. And there was strong conditioning around that. Like, this is how I, my system found safety. If I could not be there or be invisible, then I'm safe. And I think the kind of the shadow side of wanting to be a monk, being a monk when I got into the Zen tradition was so appealing. It's like, oh, finally, finally I can disappear. Like I just, I just want to get rid of myself. I'm so sick of myself. And it feels so good when, when I can not be here. And it was so important for me to move through this, to start to develop a strong sense of self that wasn't going to go anywhere. That, that was just a, an old habit that was part of surviving. I'm glad it was there. But that's different than being nobody, the way I was describing it. Me not wanting to take up space was a survival, survival mechanism. And cultivating a strong sense of self, it, it gave me the stability to open up to the sometimes destabilizing aspects of this path and this practice that come with opening, for example, to being nobody. There's a, a poem that exemplifies this. Is a, I just want to share with you a, a part of it. It's a, a poem by May Sarton. And she wrote it, uh, yeah, she wrote this, uh, uh, this poem uh, in her life, kind of in the early 1950s. And I, I, I want to point out that May Sarton was in a same-sex relationship in the 1940s and 1950s. Hopefully you can hear how much that says, right? I mean, even now it's, challenging and even sometimes dangerous to be in such a relationship in this country, even more so in the 40s and 50s. And the importance 
of uh, to be able to have a strong sense of self, also because of societal dynamics, to get a feeling of, I count, I have a space here with my particular sense of self. So I keep this in mind, just reading the, the beginning of this poem called Now I Become Myself. She says, Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces. Run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning. Hurry, you'll be dead before. Before what? Before you reach the morning or the end of the poem is clear? Or love safe in the walled city? Now to stand still, to be here, to feel my own weight and density. So important to feel our own weight and density in this way, to be somebody. And, and I would venture to say so important to feel one's own weight and density, especially if we've found ourselves in either a social context or an internal context or often both, that feels like we're being told to be invisible, that we don't count, that we need to hide who we are. That's important for the path and the practice. And in the places where there might be a kind of weight and density that gets kind of overly dominant and blind, those places of how we might be within a social context, even more so to be aware of that, how I'm socially located, so that there's a way of skillfully being in the world to not repeat dynamics of invisibilizing others on the margins. So being somebody in my particularities. So how to stabilize this? You're doing this on this retreat. This kindness towards yourself, self-compassion. This is why you probably hear us kind of saying, saying the same old thing. <laughs> It's because it's so important to have that stability of, I like myself, I love myself. To have a feeling of my own weight and density. I, I have a, a, a place here. I, I start to have that grounding through that, that care. And then a, another practice that I want to invite you to possibly engage in. It's a practice that I love to engage in both on retreat and and off retreat before I go to sleep, before I go to sleep. And it's a recollection practice. 
uh, sila nusati. It's one of the recollections that the Buddha encouraged us to engage in. And it's the practice of reflecting on one's ethical conduct. And there's two aspects to it. This is the way I divide it up. It's to reflect on the good things that you've done in the day. To feel the goodness of that and how good it feels. Because all of you are involved in such tremendous goodness. Offering other yogis silence. Practicing compassion and mindfulness. Appreciative joy, whatever else you're practicing. Sending kindness to living beings. Sharing the merit of your practice. The small things, ringing the bell for your fellow yogis doing your yogi job. And, and if you're like me, it's so easy to dismiss this. Remember this? When I began to teach, I was uh, teaching with uh, my mentor, Eric Kolvig. And I don't know if anybody knows Eric Kolvig. He's, he's kind of like, if you're going to meet him, it's like, wow, this guy's like a big teddy bear. You know, he's really like such a, such a sweetie. And we'd finished a uh, leader retreat and he turned to me and he said, uh, Brian, we did a good thing. So sweet. <laughs> That's what a teddy bear would say. <laughs> and I said something like, yeah. And all of a sudden, he became so fierce. It was really so striking. The sense of like, his like, almost ferocity around this. Kind of like, um, what did he say? Like, uh, it was something like, um, uh, no, like, you need to take that in to pause, to feel the goodness that we've been engaged in. Don't do that. It's so easy to skip over our own goodness. So easy. Well, I shouldn't say we. It's been so easy for me too. And maybe you can relate to this. It's something I need to practice. And the cool thing about silanusati, and I love this part, it's not only reflecting on the things, the good things that you did today, it's reflecting on all of the unskillful things you didn't do today. It's like a huge list. I love this list. Like, I didn't yell at anybody today. It, so, it feels so good. It's so sweet. Didn't intentionally, physically hurt anybody? That feels good. I didn't, I didn't rob a bank. I didn't steal anything today. Oh, that feels good. No big major lies. Not a passive-aggressive email or text. Mm. Feels so good. I didn't harm anybody through my speech. That's the cool thing about silence, right? Like it, 
to feel how good that is. And I mean that. You know, I think that's what I learned from my mentors. Like, it's so important to feel that. Anumodana, to, 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 to appreciate it, to celebrate. This is sila nusati, to feel how good that is. And more seriously, I, I just want to point out the beauty of that, that you're bringing into this world every day. Can you imagine if just one day, I'm talking 24 hours, if all human beings didn't intentionally physically hurt somebody else? That would be a game changer for the trouble in this world. It's not a small thing to celebrate to rejoice in your goodness, to actually be somebody. And, and the Buddha is clear about this. You know, in some place, it's like to, to use another reflection is on one's uh, generosity, to be able to say, "Oh wow, I am generous." This is different than the kind of Catholic upbringing that I was brought up in. <laughs> You'd never do that. <laughs> and I feel good about myself to celebrate that I'm somebody. So being somebody, and yeah, being nobody. So may all of us learn how to fully be somebody and to fully be nobody in a way that's for the benefit of ourselves, the benefit of others, and the benefit of the whole world. Thank you, thank you for your attention. And let's uh, just sit for a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.